Well, yeah, um, I was born in Barbados in the Caribbean, uh, the most easternly island of, of the Caribbean. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewafo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now, let's get started with this episode. I did high school, elementary school, high school, and up to sixth form in Barbados. Then I went to the U.S. Um, to go to university, spent uh, most of all my university years at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I, I did uh, two bachelor's degrees in English and history, master's in English literature, and a PhD in English literature. I was, a, I was an athlete, so I, I went to school on a track scholarship, and that got me through the undergraduate years. Uh, left uh, Lehigh in 80, I guess it was 80, 80, 1980, roughly. I finished a degree in 81, but I think I left in 80. I, I didn't have to be on campus anymore. And um, worked at a community college in New Jersey. And that was the beginning of my professional career. I, I had notions of being a university professor when I started, but the first year I worked in, in the community college changed my mind in a sense, because I, f I realized in having contact with the kind of student that was in the community college, I could probably be more useful. These were students who didn't have the academic grounding, almost never had financial means. And I that year was a one-off year while I was finishing the dissertation. I was supposed to finish the dissertation and then head off to the university. But that year, I realized that there were so many students out there who needed I guess someone really to pay attention. These were smart kids who just never had opportunities. And you knew that if they got those opportunities, there was a chance of bettering, of bettering their lives. And that one year that was supposed to be an experimental year while I finished, I was gonna get a check basically while I was finishing up my, my, my dissertation ended up being my career. So I stayed in community colleges after that ended up being the vice chancellor for two systems in Connecticut and Minnesota. And then I was president of three colleges. Uh, um, and toward the end of my career, the last six years, I was vice president of an organization called the College Board, which you may not know, but you may know the SAT, which is the test you take into many uh, elite universities here. Uh, so I was vice president of that company for the last six years of my career. I've been retired uh, since 2013 and basically writing full-time since then. But that brings you up to date. Thank you so much for that. That's really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> so now what do you spend your time on? What can you say uh, is your main area of concentration right now? And that, of course, we are going to be spending our time on. Right. Today, uh, I would say that my... Most of my energy is in writing. 
um, I always had an interest in fiction and creating fiction as a kid. In fact, my best friend Charles tells the joke that when we were about 13 or 14, I, I tried at that time to write a Western novel, having never even gone to New York, furthermore, the West. But um, so I always had this interest in writing. And during the stresses of the presidential years, when, when I was actually running large organizations, I found, and you may be familiar with this, you, you get up at two o'clock in the morning, you can't get back to sleep, and you toss. And then by the time you need to go to work, you're already tired. So what I, what I started doing was when I felt that, I'd actually get up and write for two hours. And they'd make me tired. And I'd actually go back to sleep fairly easily. <laughs> That's where the writing, uh, the, the, the second phase of the writing began as a, as a relief, really, from the presidency. Um, and, then, and as is the case with many people, you send the things out to friends and they are always laudatory you know you're great you're wonderful and why don't you publish well i never did uh, i started this in 96 when i was president of uh, philadelphia and i i didn't publish a book until 2009 and by then i had actually written seven manuscripts i had seven manuscripts sitting around before i actually published anything because i never had any intention of publishing so then in 2009, I published my first book. There was a decent response to it. So I ended up basically becoming a writer at that point. And uh, it took another four years for me to shift to it on a full-time basis. But I would say about 2009, I, I started thinking about being a full-time writer and then actually committed to it in 2013. So that takes up all my time. I'm either creating a new book, editing a book, uh, or something. That's so interesting. Now, you've written out of several manuscripts, and you didn't publish one at a time until 2019. What, uh, well, was, what was uh, holding you two, back? Two, 2009. Was the no, sorry, 2009. Yeah, 2009. So what was holding you back? What, was, what were you waiting for? Well, my energies were... were not there. Remember, I was writing as a relief from something else that was more stressful, which is I, I, when I started writing in 96, I think I was the president of um, Philadelphia. It was a, an institution with 47,000 students um, and, and a pretty significant budget. So I, a lot of my time was taken up dealing with the issues that normally accumulate around running large organizations and the politics of it and union stuff, all, all that kind of thing. So the writing at that point was a relief from something else. Publishing meant taking on a different kind of pressure because then you have to worry about not simply getting the book published, finding an agent, but then if the book comes out, you've got to market the book, which takes up time, energy, and it needs your attention. I didn't have any of those things. Uh, so what I did was I continued to write as a release, a release uh, from the presidency. But then by the time I decided that I could publish, I had all these manuscripts sitting uh, there. All right. So 
uh, what do you write about? Because now you have written out your seven books uh, before, okay, seven manuscripts before you could publish the first one in 2009. Right. Uh, but I'm trying to understand, what were you writing about all this while? Right. I think when I started, like most people, you look to a tradition. And Barbados has a number of significant novelists. Unfortunately, the two, two most significant uh, died between last year and the most prominent one died June 4th this year. But you do tend to model yourself uh, on the people that you admired. So a lot of my early work tended to be reflective of George Lamin's work. George Lamin uh, was also, by the way, one third of my, of my dissertation. Uh, I, I wrote my dissertation on Lamin, V.S. Naipaul from Trinidad and Chinua Achebe from Nigeria. And um, so most of my work tended to look at Barbadian society early on. So the first novel, uh, Four Saints and an Angel, started with the idea that I would try to chronicle a more modern version of what George Lavin had done. He's, he was much older. His growing up had been in the 1930s, whereas my growing up was in the 1950s. My political maturity was in 1966. His political maturity was 1937. And I wanted to write a novel that would reflect the differences in that, both in the span of that time, and or different sensibilities with respect to how we viewed politics and so on. So I, my, my first novel, not the first novel written, but my first novel published was Four Saints and an Angel. And that looked at modern Barbadian society. I tended to do something that Lamin by and large didn't, maybe because he couldn't do. And that is to look at the upper middle class, whereas his novel, um, tended to look at the working class. And my novel examined the people who had been successful since independence, which came in 1966. And I would say that's, that's sort of the, the beginning point of my political consciousness. Whereas for him, 1937, which were the labor riots that then gave rise to black political parties in the country would have been the beginning of his sensibility uh, with respect to politics. So I wanted to write a novel that was shaped slightly differently from, well, maybe very differently from his, that it tended to look at the same racial segment of the population, but in, certain, in terms of social status, significantly different. They were now in control. And in a sense, I wanted to look at their behaviors to see whether those behaviors were significantly different from the Black people that he talked about who were at that time then the recipients of social force and pressure and so on. So that, that was the first one. The second novel published also looked at um, Barbados to a certain extent, but the Caribbean more generally. And that one was called A Death in Panama. Now, the Panama experience is hugely significant. Um, I'm sure you've heard of it. Is that related to the so-called the Panama, the Panama paper? No, no. That's very modern thing. The, the, this is the building of the Panama Canal. Ah, okay, okay. 
which would have been in the, the 19, well, it started with the French in the 19th century, but the Americans stick it over at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And then, so for the first 15 years, roughly of the 20th century, the canal was built. The Americans initially wanted to use a Chinese labor because they'd used Chinese labor in the 19th century to, to build uh, the railroads out west. And that population at that time was fairly compliant. They were so far away from home, being China, that they, they were in the, their compliance was enforced because they didn't have any mechanism to get back home. Obviously, they were second class citizens in the United States, which is very good at creating second class citizens. And um, so they were, the intention was to use them. But then when they realized that, Panama was a hotbed of malaria and yellow fever. The assumption, incorrect, was made that people who lived in the tropics, therefore West Indians who weren't that far away from Venezuela, Venezuela, would be a better workforce because they would be more resistant to the tropical diseases. Now that proved to be not true. Uh, it's just like in modern times, the assumption that doctors still make about Black people having higher tolerance for pain. So that in America, statistically, Black people get fewer painkillers than white people because the assumption of many doctors is that uh, Black people have a higher tolerance for pain. The same assumptions were there 100 years ago when the canal was being built, but in this case, it was a, a, higher, a belief that they had a higher resistance to tropical diseases. This wasn't true, but that didn't stop uh, the Caribbean folk from moving to uh, Panama in huge numbers. And the reason for that, of course, was the contrast between the abject poverty of the islands at that point and the relative prosperity of a much better salary from an American establishment. So a lot of people went at that time. They died in huge numbers uh, because of malaria, because of yellow fever, because of ignorance about explosives. And remember, I, I don't know how much you know about the Panama Canal, but essentially what they were trying to do was to cut a mountain in half to join the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. That proved- That was a huge walk. Oh man, it proved impossible. Uh, so they ended up with what they have today, which is a lock system, system that instead of literally at sea level, having the Atlantic join the Pacific, which turned out to be a good thing, by the way, because we subsequently discovered that the bacteria in the two oceans are very different. So had they joined them, they probably would have been destructive to the sea life if the two oceans had joined, but that's, that's another story. Um, so what they ended up doing was building a lock system where they raised boats from sea level up using the lock system up to, it was a huge lake uh, uh, that they joined to the ends of the country and then built the locks to lift the boats up from sea level. And then on the other side, take them back down to sea level. So it's, it was a magnificent, magnificent uh, achievement. And, um, but the West Indian part of that was particularly interesting because these people in huge numbers, I think 
something like on the order of 25% of the males in Barbados left Barbados to go to Panama. Now that is huge. <laughs> that huge is now. huge. But think about think about what that means to a society. 25% of the workforce, the male workforce, goes because Barbados is essentially a black country. It is about 1% white. So it, in, in terms of significant percentages, it, they don't matter. So say 25% of the, the population leave, the working the working population leaves, goes to Panama. Think about what that does to the society and the women in the society. That's where I became really interested. How do women function when men actually leave? And of course, there was a comparable situation in Britain with the war, right? Where all the men were now in, in Europe because of the war and the young men and the women had to backfill. So women were working in jobs all of a sudden that they never were allowed to do before, working in factories, building bombs, all these things they, that five years before they would have been told that you can't do it, you have no capacity to do it. Well, in Barbados, the same thing happened. And so women started doing things like um, cutting canes. Now the, the labor in sugarcane, and you're a Nigerian, so you'd be familiar with this, that the labor is gender differentiated. So I, I, if I remember correctly from, uh, from Achebe, you know, women, men handle the yams in, in Igbo society, right? women didn't or grew them right well in barbados with sugarcane women could plant but they never cut they never loaded onto the onto the horse and carts or in later cases trucks um but all of these things changed as men left so that was one thing that interested me and i i worked that out in the book then the second thing that interested me was what happened with people who were leaving sort of a proto-slavery situation. Slavery had ended officially in 1934, sorry, 18, 1834, but the conditions didn't change that much. People were still locked to the plantation, didn't have any options. Many of the, the people still lived on tenantry land, which is land that was part of the plantation, but given over to the workers for their use, their shacks and huts and so on. Um, so my question was, what was going to happen with the money that was made? Because these are now American dollars that were made. And of course, that became an interesting study in itself, because many of these people saved their money, came home and actually bought plantations themselves. Uh, two plantations near my home where I grew up were bought with what we called Panama money uh, as these people came back. So. Uh, that gives you a sense of what my first two books were like, uh, but it was really an exploration of the history and the sociology of Barbados and by extension, the larger Caribbean, but I wrote about Barbados because I, I knew that best. Um, so those are, those are the first two books. Yeah, really very interesting. Thank you. Uh, um, now, and it sounds to me more like, um, like a research, actually, like a kind of... Um, um, you, you do fiction writing, but this appeared to be more like a non-fiction writing, like a kind of a research paper. Right. Is, is this something like that? Or do you want to yes. say anything about that? I, 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 I wouldn't say a research paper because the approaches are different if you're doing research and writing a research paper and you're actually creating fiction. 
fiction gives me a lot of freedom to create things that never happened, even though they may they have to be realistic. So it's possible they could have happened, but they may not really have happened. Whereas with the research paper or the research paper, they really happened, right? So I think that's a significant difference. Um, but yes, I do a lot of research um, for my books. Uh, I spent time in Panama uh, at the canal examining the museum, which is very, uh, where West Indians are very prominently uh, displayed because they were, such, they were such a significant part of the building of this canal. And I spent time in the sections of, the, of uh, Panama City today that you can still go into those sections. This is now you're 100 years later, over 100 years later. You can still go into those sections and find authentic Barbadian food. So even though they now speak Spanish and so on, you can go into a home or occasionally a restaurant and get something that tastes exactly like you would get here. So I found that really exciting and interesting. Um, actually, one, one of the more intriguing linguistic experiences I had was I, th this was not in Panama City. I'd gone, I'd taken a train I, or maybe a car, I can't remember, maybe a car over to Cologne. Panama City is on the Pacific side and Cologne is on the Caribbean Sea, Atlantic Ocean side of the country. And so I'd driven over there and I was in, I was in this store and <laughs> I heard this kid, he looked to be in his 20s and he was speaking with a raw country Jamaican accent the kind that you can't understand, right? Even West Indies. But I hadn't heard English in so long, I went up to him and I said, where are you from in Jamaica? As soon as I asked the question, he switched to Spanish and he explained he was not from Jamaica, the, that his grandmother had come uh, from Jamaica and she was from Westmoreland, which is the country, one of the country parts of, of Jamaica. But the funny thing about this story is not that he was using the accent, but that when, and this is a, 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 what I would describe as a lower class, working class Jamaican accent. When he switched to Spanish, he had a very educated accent. So it was, it was fascinating to me that the only English he knew was his grandmother's English. So he copied that. Even though he was educated in Spanish and had what I would describe as not an upper class, but an upper middle class Spanish accent, when he switched to English, he went back to this country working class accent. I, it, was, it was just fascinating to watch and listen to. <laughs> and I just want to say it was exposed to. It, it reminded me of. Um... Okay, you know, I live in Italy, you know, uh, at one point I was talking to uh, one Italian dancer uh, who was dancing for Fela Kuti. Mm -hmm. uh, her name is uh, Anna Maria Gallone, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, she's part of the organizer of the Milan Film Festival. So at one point I was talking to her to tell me her experience when she went to Nigeria. Uh, of course, she, uh, she wanted to speak English, no? 
And I could see that the English she was speaking was typically the Nigerian English. Even though she is from uh, from Europe, she's an Italian, no? Yeah. So I, um, I tend to uh, understand this to mean that it depends on what you are exposed to because that conditions you or the reality that you have around you. Yes. But this is on a very subtle level, but it can even be very deeper if we want to expand on that. Right. Uh, yeah, I really find that very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me something more. How do you approach your own writing? I mean, tell us something about that, because here in this podcast, we do a lot about writing, storytelling, because it is very easy core of what we talk about here. Right. I, th I think it's probably important to explain. I write in two different genres, and I describe, the first two books I describe may be, may be assigned to the literary fiction category, you know, where, where sociology, history, become the background to those novels. I write also in another genre. So I've written five books in that genre and that's science fiction. So the question in my mind is whether a single approach, whether I have a single approach, I think I actually do have um, more than one approach to, to write in. And in the case of the socio sociological or historical fiction, what I'm interested in is a set of questions about a particular society, questions to which I don't necessarily have an answer, but they strike me as interesting. So what I will do is go research that question. So let's say the first novel I described, which um, was centered around a character called Mark. And Mark is, He's been missing, missing from the island for a long time. He left, nobody heard from him and all that stuff. And then he comes back into everybody's lives. And he is not what I would describe as a straightforward human being. He's obviously had a life that, that's been complex and secretive. And it turns out that he was something like a mercenary for a long time. So he's fought in, in different wars in Latin America and Africa and so on. But this is not known. But as he comes back, each one of his old friends, and these, are these were close-knit, uh, this was a close-knit group. So like there are four others. Each one of the people at home, all of whom are now quite successful with the exception of Annis, who is also in the middle class, but she's a struggling artist. So she's what you might describe as economically not successful, but sociologically she is because she fits in that artist class, right? And, but they all had different, different relationships, personal relationships. There's the group relationship. And then there are these individual personal relationships that may not be as well known to the full group. And each one of them tries to play out those relationships with him again, and it creates all kinds of problems for the group, particularly when they begin to realize that Mark being there has a political motive as well. So then the individual people in the group are playing out three sets of relationships. They plan out these secret relationships they've had, like he was um, Estelle's boyfriend from the time they were like, 13 or 14, and she's never really gotten over him. 
but he had a secret affair with one of the other women in the group and nobody else knows about that. And she's trying to work out what to do about it. Um, the male guy was his, was his type buddy and they're trying, he's now in politics and he's trying to figure out once it becomes clear that Mark is not simply back on vacation, what to do with that relationship. So it gives me a chance to do two things. It gives me a chance to look back and recreate those old relationships from the 1950s. But it also gives me a chance to look at what the society is, is now, the complexity of it, the corruption in it, the successes of it, and so on. The same people who were poor back in the 50s are now the elite. So the question is, how do they function? One person is, I believe, the deputy prime, not, not the deputy head of the party, not the deputy prime, but she was, and I believe she's actually, uh, the character is, is actually either the chief justice or something. So these are successful people in society. But the question is, if you look back 50 years, these are the poor people, right? And now they have to control the society. Can they control it? Can they create behaviors that are any different from the people that they replaced. And I've got to tell you, as, as, as a Nigerian, I think you understand that, that co the complexity of that question as, as well. Now, tell me about your characters, the characters in your, in your books. How do you develop them? How do you pick them? What role yeah. do they play uh, in the framework of your story? Right. Characters, of course, are hugely important because they're the vehicle by which the story is told. You may think of that in two ways. It's told through their words, meaning the dialogue where they actually speak in. But in many cases, it's also told through the narrative, right? The narrative, which is outside of the dialogue, what the narrator tells you about them or tells you about what they're thinking, or what they have done, that kind of thing. So characters are at the center of, of everything that you do, even if you are not writing a plot-based novel. And, and many uh, literary fiction novels aren't plot-based. Uh, they are more descriptive, uh, interpretive, analytical, that kind of thing, rather than the fast-paced melodramatic work that you see in say, a James Bond kind of character. Um, versus a character that might show up in Faulkner or Achebe even, you know, that, that kind of much slower pace, much more interested in using the character to develop themes about the society in which the, the author is interested. So I would say that my books tend to be a combination of those things because I have never given up melodrama. I, I, as a kid, I was always in trouble for reading comics because they were not allowed. They were, at, in the 50s, this was the devil's stuff. So, you know, if you weren't reading the Bible, you weren't reading anything useful, except it had something to do with school. So I, I had to hide my comics to be able to read them, even though, by the way, I turned out to be the biggest trader of comics in my village under my parents' and grandparents' noses but I wasn't officially allowed to have them, right? And so I've never lost the taste for melodrama, which comic books, you know, Western novels, that kind of thing. So my books tend to be partially literary. 
So my characters tend to be smart. They're capable of analytical reasoning, taking a look at their societies to see how it functions and so on. They're capable of that. At the same time, I always include melodramatic elements, like the Mark character being the mercenary. Obviously, that's more action-driven, but it's a smaller part of my work. The work tends to be more about the literary things, trying to understand the society, understand people through the development of character and so on. But I also realized that, except for the really successful literary writers, excuse me, the um, most readers want to read a much faster paced book. So I, I've created my own mechanism for doing that, creating faster pace. At the same time, I get the opportunity to do these analytical pieces of work that I'm interested in. All right, thank you. Uh, very briefly, uh, to, to conclude this section, um, how can people find your book and how can they connect with you if they want to learn more about you? Please go. My books, all my books are on Amazon uh, and they, they're in e-format as well as uh, hard copy and soft copy. Um, no, no actuals uh, spoken versions, but the other three are available. Uh, I can be connected. Um, you can connect uh, with me through my, uh, my email, which is rawilliams2007 at yahoo.com. So that's rawilliams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, 2007 at yahoo.com. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review Obehead podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead A14. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.